0: We're releasing this episode in the lead up to MotoGP, the Australian Grand Prix at Phillip Island, one of my favourite times of the year. Our guest spent decades on the tour and for a while worked in Formula One. At times, even leapfrogging between the two in a crazy busy chapter of his life. His comms and PR work saw him making content well before we even use that term and working on events for all sorts of automotive brands and motorsport partnerships. He's a best-selling author too, but most of you will know him for his commentary. In fact, he was widely regarded as the voice of MotoGP before his retirement in 2017, a part of his life that he admits was difficult to give up or shift into park. Nick Harris, as you'll hear, has worked with the greats. He shares some wonderful insights and stories on them as we chat here. His career spans the revered 500cc period, which many of you listening remember so fondly its heroes and their feats of bravery on those awesome two stroke machines, and almost two decades of the new four stroke era as well, which is now producing arguably some of the most competitive racing we've seen. Yes there'll be a Barry Sheen story or two. Nick knew him well, and he vividly recalls their final meeting before Baz left us, sadly. Nick is now in his 70s, and while he's not at the rounds as often these days, that doesn't mean he's stopped contributing more on that later. And he's still working around football in the UK too. His other love, Oxford United. I should really have done this pod ages ago, in the Island Media Centre after he hosted one of his countless press conferences in that unmistakable Nick Harris style. But we'll make do with the interweb. From this convo, you would never know that we were 17,000 k's apart. And that's because of the truly endearing and likeable person that Nick is. I hope you enjoy some of the tales from almost 50 years working around the sport. Nick Harris,
1: welcome to the podcast. Honour to be with you, Rusty. Long time no see and uh, all my friends in Australia, long time no see as well and so, so many great memories.
0: Well, let's get to a few of those a little bit later. Can we talk about your wonderful career, which is still going, I might add. You are <laughs> busy even now, aren't you?
1: Yeah, <laughs> Uh, it's absolutely crazy, to be honest with <laughs> you, this GP guru, podcasts like this, I write a blog every week, I'm very busy with football locally that I always have been, yeah, uh, it was supposed to be different, but uh, it's absolutely flat out, but yeah, I tell you what, it's a lot better than sitting at home uh, with your slippers on.
0: Exactly. Have you started the day, because it's, it's night time here, but morning there, have you started the day with a cuppa, Nick?
1: I've had two cuppers, God, good <laughs> that. Uh, two cuppers, it's a, a lovely autumnal morning, we've had some unbelievable weather in England the last few days, 25 degrees in October, unheard of, the leaves are just beginning to fall from the trees and uh, you just get the sense that, well, autumn, winter is getting closer.
0: Okay. Can we do
1: a little walk down
0: memory lane about you? I know you'll invariably want to talk about uh, bikes and some of the heroes on them and some of the stories that you've covered along the way. You touched on it a little bit there before about your love of football as well. You were born uh, in the late 40s near Oxford. Am I right in saying your dad had a love of sport, but not necessarily motor racing? And where did the, the connection come from for you?
1: Right. Yeah. My dad was a sports mad cricket. We used to tune in at uh, five o'clock in the morning for the test matches in Australia Used to fade and come and fade on the radio. I remember writing to the England team in Australia. Len Hutton was the captain and he sent me a letter back with a, with a signature. I think England actually won that rare England won that series. I, I think, yeah, we were cricket mad, rugby mad as well. Uh, Dear old dad, and then I got more interested in football and uh, motorcycles, <laughs> but uh, uh, that's life. I mean, Oxford is an incredible, it certainly there was an incredible city to grow up in if you were keen on sport. Roger Bannister ran that first uh, four-minute mile at Oxford. The university, rugby, soccer, cricket, especially teams were first class. So you were watching absolute first class sport. Every uh, every week. That wasn't the now, same with the football. That 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 came differently with first Oxford City and then Oxford United.
0: United, yeah. Now from a motor racing point of view, am I right in saying that that um on the two wheel side you might have seen yeah, Murray Walker's dad um, race at one point and and I think maybe Mike Halewood's machine left a really lasting impression on you as a young fellow, didn't it?
1: It, it certainly did. Mike Hayward uh, lived just across the hill from here in, in Boar's Hill, and uh, his dad, Stan Hayward, ran Kings of Oxford. There was a street in Oxford that was just full of motorcycle dealerships in those days, and they'd been lying down the streets. I remember cycling to school one day, uh, dreading what was going to happen because I hadn't done my homework as always, and in the window of Kings... Of Oxford was Mike Hayward's 250 Honda that he'd won the TT on. Uh, his dad, I think, had uh, had just a one-off ride on that 250 four-cylinder Honda, and it was in the window at Kings of Oxford. I remember, I I just couldn't believe it. Wow! And uh, yeah, I, I I I was set. But started off again. Oxford was had a very good speedway team. Why? So oh. I was a very keen speedway fan. Every Thursday, we'd go to the the speedway. Hot dog program, a flirting on the back of the bus coming home, <laughs> fish and chips. Yeah. And a, a, a boy from the village, Keith Hickman, was a very good uh, scrambler, as we called it days rather, a motocross, yeah. went on to ride for the BSA Works team. So we used to cycle to the local uh, scramble tracks all over the place and got very keen. And it was very big on television in those days in Britain on both channels. Uh, scrambling, Murray Walker doing the commentary for the BBC. And uh, I really, really got interested in scrambling rather than uh, road racing till a friend, father, and a a, a lad at school and his dad, we went to Mallory Park. And I remember getting out of the car and Hilda was coming into that Mallory Park hairpin, I think probably on the Honda 6, it might have been on the 4, and just hearing it. And I was thinking, oh, this is for me. This this is is what I want to watch and, and be involved in.
0: Hey, now you took the Mickey out of yourself there a minute ago. This is a bit of a loaded question. Were you any good at school? Because it hasn't it hasn't affected your career uh, at all if you weren't.
1: <laughs> no, afraid not. <laughs> afraid not. No, I, I I got far more interested in motorcycles, football, and girls. <laughs> and consequently, I left school with one O level, one O level, and that was two attempts went to work in the the local solicitor's office because my mum and dad knew the local solicitor is a clerk, to, to be honest with you. But I'll, t- I'll tell you another story. One day, I'm sitting there, I am so bored, I'll tell you. And I was going to Alton Park the next day. It's when Hayward had left Honda. Uh, Honda had withdrawn, but he's, they gave him a bike so he'd ride at selected events. So it was a big thing to go to. And the phone rang. It was the boss from upstairs. It was a Smashing bloke, he said. Oh Nick, uh, there's somebody I want you to meet uh, before he goes, and I think you ought to come up. So up I went, and then I went, and there was Howard He'd come to sign some papers there, and I shook hands with, with, with God as he was in those days to me. Days. And, uh, I was, for once in my life, Rusty. I was speechless. I just mm. didn't know what to, what to say. <laughs> yeah.
0: To to this day, he is still very much a hero for you. I mean, you've you've met and worked alongside some unbelievable people in motorcycle racing in in your career, Nick, but he uh, is right up there for you, isn't he?
1: Yeah, he is. I, I think, one, that he uh, comes from uh, our neck of the woods. That, woods. That, that, yeah. That's great. Two, he used to go to the jazz club in Oxford. My sister went there and I just said, right, you get with this Mike Haywood I want him as a boyfriend it, it, never, it never happened actually but uh, I was very disappointed with my sister she let me down was- badly yeah the thing with Haywood he could ride any bike any bike 1 to 5 ride up to 500s uh two stroke four strokes and could ride at any circuits he could win at the TT he could uh, uh, uh win uh, uh, r- uh, proper road racing circuits so he he was amazing yeah he, he's to me he's Right up there, right up there with the very, very best. And tragically losing his life in a in a, 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 a motor accident and yeah. losing his daughter in the crash as well was, was absolutely ho- horrendous. And I spoke to uh, his widow who sadly passed away. Now, when he was inducted into the GP Hall of Fame and she was telling me uh, when he saved the, the life of the Formula One driver, was it uh, Andretti Kailami uh, in... Uh, South Africa, when he dived into the uh, the burning car uh, and pulled him out. She said he came back to the pits afterwards and never said a word to anybody about it. Just wow. uh, He got the George Medal in Britain for, for a, a, an act of uh, bravery. Bravery. Know? A remarkable, yeah. remarkable person. And then he'd come back and win the TT at, what was he, 39 years old, I mean. And, Amazing. Yeah, you can't write stories like that, can you? I they just have to no. happen. No.
0: Your, your first. Am I right in saying that one of your first bike Grand Prix was actually the Dutch TT in the early 70s, maybe 1973? Was that the first one you went to it, as a young it fellow? It certainly
1: was, yeah. We were massive Jano Saarinen fans, uh, okay. me and my mates. And so we, we, we said we're not going to go to the TT, which was a big thing. Not to go to the TT in the Isle of Man. We went every year. It was like a pilgrimage. But Rich, we were going to go to yeah. the Dutch TT instead. And of course, tragically, Saarinen was killed uh, to Monza before mm. them. We still went. We had an absolute ball. We'd hardly ever been abroad. There was <laughs> beer at six o'clock in the morning, chips with mayonnaise. <laughs> it was just <laughs> the <absolute>. fritz. <laughs> it was absolutely amazing. And uh, I, I think, all of us i i think me in particular decided this is just fantastic then we used to go every year to to different events we went to spa i think the year after and then 75 we went back to um back to assen and that's where sheen won his first ever 500 cc grand prix you can imagine uh We'd had a few beers before. We'd had a lot of beers afterwards, I can assure you. It was great. We'll get
0: to Barry. We'll get to Barry because yeah. I want to um, pick your brain on a couple of good stories, if, if we can. You, you mentioned before about you, you know um, a job in a solicitor's office and that maybe not working out and so on. You ended up, am I right, um, that there was a distribution uh, manager's job, maybe for the Oxford Journal, um, that didn't kind of work out, but but you you did get some work around your
1: football and BBC radio and and things like that. Is that correct? That that's right. Yeah, I mean the best. Uh, I was very happy. I I'd left this. I went to work in a sports shop. Then came a, a a rep for the South of England. Very happy, but then they launched a local paper in, in Oxford called the Oxford Journal. I went. They. Had, I knew the, the guys who were funding it and running it. I went to mm. see them. And they said, we, we'd want a distribution manager. You know Oxford and the area better than anybody. Are you interested? I said, no, no, no. I'm really happy what they're doing. They offered me three times the money in a company car. So I said, <laughs> well, I'll have, have a think about it for a minute. <laughs> Thought about it for a minute. It's the best thing I ever did because not only was I distribution manager, which was pretty grim picking up bundles of newspapers under uh, Donington Bridge in Oxford on a, on a Monday morning and stuff like mm. that. But I started writing or the uh, local bits and pieces for the for the paper, uh, and it went from there. And the, the big breakthrough, Oxford United played in Italy in the Anglo-Italian Cup, and my, the, the the man that was running the Oxford Journal wanted to become chairman of Oxford United, and he summoned me to his, to his office and said, uh, you're going to Italy tomorrow with Oxford United. I mean, i had yeah, hardly been abroad. I'd not written a football match report since I was at school primary school that went up on the notice board and off I went with Oxford United and it it really kicked off from then with Radio Oxford with with the football and things yeah and then I was lucky, Job came up at Motorcycle News, I got persuaded to uh, apply for it which I I never thought I had a chance in hell and suddenly I was working at Motorcycle News and then the world just opened up into a completely different world. I am I'm glad
0: you kinda of corrected me there before too. I said it didn't work out what I meant was. It did uh, Yeah, no, was you didn't, I didn't necessarily want to begin with. I
1: didn't want to be under Donington Bridge every Monday picking up uh um uh, bundles of newspapers I haven't been delivered amongst the dog stuff and needles yeah. and everything else. No, no, no i would uh, I d I I'd I'd had enough of that. <laughs>
0: Our world has changed so much now. We can talk, as we're doing now, um, you know, over the internet, basically. But back then, Nick, we're talking phone reports, filing results by phone, telex machines, if you could get
1: one and all sorts, weren't you? Oh, it, was, it, 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 it was an amazing. I, I went to Motorcycle News, and I, the first year... I did the British Superbike Championship, which was fantastic because all the top Grand Prix riders came to ride in it because it's the only way they made any money, to be honest money. with you. So the likes of Barry Sheen, Mick Grant, uh, others came uh, uh, and rode. It was a great thing to do. But then the the motocross correspondent for Motorcycle News, uh, Patrick Crichton. He got caught going the reversing up the motorway, going to the British uh, Motocross Grand Prix because he'd missed the turning. He got banned from driving. So I was summers <laughs> into the office and they said, Nick, you're doing the motocross. I went, Oh, no, I don't really do. I'm so happy doing what I did. It was great. I did two years travelling all over Europe. It, it taught me really how, how to look after myself, how to file a story. I was lucky, Graham Noyce you became a great friend of mine, won the world championship as well. Championship. It, it was a great experience. And But I always, always wanted to be the the the, the road racing man. And in uh, the end, the chance came at Motorcycle Weekly. But yeah, back, sorry to your original question. Oh, it was, you, you just, one, getting a pass. That was hard enough because each individual circuit issued the passes. Two, finding a phone, that worked was virtually impossible to file the copy over you have you would have a, an operator on a telex machine would uh, file all your early copy of gossip and practice and you had to type out all the results and in those days there was 50s 125s 250s 350s 500 sidecars six classes you had to type all, all that out and then after you'd done all that you try and find that phone either at the circuit, which I say was very difficult, or back at the hotel, and then you'd be on the phone two hours, two and a half hours, phoning copy over. Some of the copy takers were great; others, you could tell when you you go uh, right off we go. And then Barry Sheen, they say, "How do you spell that?" You go, "God, this oh. is going to be a, this is going to be a long <laughs> night." And it, 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 it was a long night, but it really, really taught you one how to survive. And mm. two, how to gather news and how to somehow get it back. Photographs were taken by the photographers who gave you the films. Then you had to bring them back, develop them, and then you choose the pictures with a, a sheet. Yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, it was... It was crazy it went very, very hard work, especially on a Sunday. But ah, you know, it was. I was young. I was travelling the world, watching motorcycles race. Like I wasn't grumbling. Yeah. No, yeah.
0: no, amazing grounding for the life to come yeah, for you was, in, in many was, many ways. Yeah. Great, great skills. Your first Grand Prix, though, fittingly took you when you when I'm talking as a you know as, as a journalist covering it. Did it not take you full circle? You went back to the Dutch TT in about yeah. 1980.
1: Yeah, I did. It was amazing. (laughs) Typical me, when I started at Motorcycle News and I went to do the motocross, uh, there was a, a, a strike. So I missed two or three Grand Prix's at Motorcycle News. I then go to Motorcycle Weekly, strike big strike and we we were out of work for oh, a month or more so i missed the opening two or three grand prix i was going to miss the tt but i went to the tt independently while i was at the tt the news came that, that everything had been resolved and off we went yeah the first one i went to with dear old mcbullet who was the, the editor was to assen yeah uh, yeah it was uh, uh, it, it had to be in many ways, and uh, Jack Middleburg won the race, the Dutch rider, and wow. I, I've been to some crazy places and crazy scenes since, but that was absolute mayhem. It was mayhem. brilliant that, mm. that he uh, he won the 500cc, dear old Jack, of course, sadly lost his life as well. Mm. An
0: amazing place, Nick. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about some great tracks along the way, but I mean... Um, you know, Dutch race is very special for all sorts of reasons, isn't
1: it? Yeah, it is. I mean, it is the only original track from that very first uh, World Era, Championship yeah. in nineteen what well, nineteen forty nine, a year before Formula One started. Bike started, and Assen's been there ever since. It is an amazing circuit. The crowds are incredible, considering there's such a lack of Dutch success uh, in Grand Prix mm-hmm. racing, and that's been for a long, long time. They still turn up in there droves uh, the track has had to be altered over the years and obviously the the cynics and the purists say oh it's not as good as it was no it it probably isn't but there was reasons it had to be altered not just safety Mm -hmm. reasons uh, uh, wildlife uh, uh, and everything else but a lot of the original track is still there it's a, a very very special place to go to
0: the Isle of Man TT has figured, or featured rather, significantly in, in your time, from from books to the coverage that you spoke about before, and so on. Just give us a sense of the impact that that event has had on you, because it is last bastion stuff nowadays. The track is remarkable. Um, what they do on those machines, the heroics is incredible, even now. And and some greats have ridden it over time. I mean, I, I look now, Nick, at. at um, at colleagues, perhaps in the four-wheel world, like Mark Weber, if you get Mark Weber talking about the Isle of Man TT, you almost won't stop him. He, he he raves about it, taking people there and and letting them see and experience what it is what it is like.
1: It- it's incredible 37 miles of absolutely everything i go every year to the manx grand prix which is a, mm. a classic uh, event we always go in september with we call it the well it's the old boys trip three of the <laughs> lads go with a race in the manx and racing in the tt and there's me one sidecar lap of the tt and we go every year we have a wonderful time most of the people there have got gray hair like me uh but it's it's an absolutely unique event. There is nothing like it in the world. Uh, of course, in those early days, uh, when I think I first went in 65 on a, on a, a day trip, uh, when you went over on the ferry in the morning, watched the race and came, came back to Liverpool that night and saw Haywood and Agostini and everybody else, uh, it was the world championship event. It was the only world championship event in Britain. So it was the British Grand Prix, but it was uh, at... at at the TT. TT, That has changed since with the Silverstone and Donington when uh, a lot of people wouldn't ride there because it's too dangerous. And I think that's important that people have the prerogative if they don't want to ride there because not Mm. everybody wants to to ride there. But as a spectacle, to go somewhere, I can think of so many bends. You go somewhere... Ren Cullen or some of them. They're coming through there at 150, 160 miles an hour with their shoulders touching brick walls. There's a there's a road sign at Ren Cullen. I, I noticed it this year. Forty mile an hour speed limit and they're coming through there about hundred and fifty miles an hour. It is dangerous. They're lapping there over hundred and thirty miles an hour now. Perhaps that is a bit too quick. Perhaps the bikes are are, are a bit too powerful, but it I think anybody who loves motorcycle racing Loves racing two or four wheels. You've got to go to the TT at least once just to feel, one, what it was like in the past, but even now, just how incredible it is.
0: Before we move on and, and talk more of your career, you've you've mentioned Halewood there before. It would be remiss of us not to get an observation or a thought from you on the great Giacomo Agostini. I mean, to get to see him at the TT. I think you've mentioned in other publications, um, and rightly so, that his his record will never likely you know, be beaten. Um, he's just an amazing human being and athlete, wasn't he?
1: He was. Isn't uh, he? Yeah. Uh, uh, everything about him was right. One, he was mm-hmm. the best motorcycle racer in the world. Two, he was so good-looking, he attracted so many pretty young ladies to his life. <laughs> Three, he's Augustus. still youthful now, isn't he? Oh, he is, isn't he? <laughs> I'm like, I'm... Yeah, he, he is. Uh, he, he was amazing. Yeah, he, you know, People would say, ah, oh, he came at the right time. Yeah, he did. He had the best machinery with the, the MV Augustus they, they were far better than anything else, the 350s and the the 500s and the three-cylinder and the four-cylinder. But I think what some people forget also, right at the end of his career, he switched to Yamaha and he became the first ever rider to win the 500cc World Championship on a two-stroke machine. And that, I think, just speaks volumes of how good he was. And you still got to ride the bike. You might have the best car. You might have the best bike. you still got to go out there and lap the Isle of Man at 108 miles an hour. You've still got yeah. to win. These races were long races, two hours long as well. They're very, very different to, to the races we see now.
0: Tell me about the move into commentary. You detailed there before about you know, you know, uh, your love of Oxford United. Um, your first kind of public broadcast of anything was football in the early early sort of 70s. We, we tend to think of you now, Nick, for your commentary of, of bike racing and what you did in that great period for the sport, but it was actually football more or less that kicked it off, wasn't it, in terms of commentary?
1: Uh, uh, it was. I, I'm totally in love with Oxford United still. I'm still... The old eyes aren't good enough for commentary. Now, I still do punditry. They still have to, to, okay. to, 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 they still have to listen to me, and I still go to all the home games. Yeah, uh, yes, it, it was. I, I I was lucky because the, 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 Oxford drew nil all in Bologna. But I mean, amazing. It was Bologna as well, uh, where that first game was. Of course, the home of Ducati, and really right in the heart of a motorcycle racing territory. And when we came back on the coach, the radio Oxford guy Tony Anderson was waiting. Some, would you like to come and make the tea and read the football results? I said that sounds okay. And I think it was two pounds I got for each each shift I did. It meant stop playing football on a Saturday afternoons. It was quite a big rent. So I love playing uh, local football on a Saturday afternoon, I, I, and it honestly really went from there. And I was I started doing, uh, I started doing commentaries at events, uh, North Gloucestershire Club road racing, uh, places like Roughton and Gaydon, and then grass tracks locally, and it really it really took off. Uh, took off from there what about the formation of nick
0: harris media communications this is another hat that you wear this is bringing together all the talents that we've spoken about so far and it involved all sorts of things nick didn't it from promotional work to media managing the rothman's honda team and so on
1: yeah it did uh, motorcycle weekly sadly ceased so we all got uh, made redundant. i, I got to say, we were looked after very well by IPC. And I, I set up on my own. And uh, that-, that meant going to the races, sleeping in the paddock, Traveling, uh, John Brown, Paul Fowler, my great friends, helped me enormously with car tire. And you know, Ray Daniel, the photographer, sleeping in the awning of his van, and all Criky. good things that really, really set you up for, for, for later on. And when you see people what? moaning, sometimes you think, You've got it so good, you don't start worrying about that. But uh, yeah, and it Nick Harris Media Communications, Chas Mortimer, who was uh, setting up a race team, Silverstone Armstrong, based at Silverstone, Jimmy Brown, who ran the Silverstone Circuit, they just started staging the Grand Prix, and he was very keen that the bikes got a a, a lot more going for them, and Chas asked me to come along and do the PR, and that's exactly what I did with Neil McKenzie uh well the, one of the, the main riders and donny mcleod they both very good riders and, and did well in the world championship as far as i'm just thinking back to the broadcasting that really came uh was in south africa 1983 it was the first race back of barry sheen after his horrendous silverstone crash so it was a, crash, a yeah. massive massive thing and um BBC radio rang me up and said uh, Chris Carter, who was doing the radio for them, was doing the television commentary for ITV because it was big news in Britain. Could I, they've been trying to get hold of Barry Sheen, was there any chance I could get hold of him and could he do an interview? Well, this is the, the night before the race. So I went and knocked on Barry's hotel room door. He was already in bed with Stephanie, seven o'clock in the evening. We were getting a good night's sleep for the race. I said, Barry, sorry to disturb you. I said, The BBC wondered if you. he said, OK, Nicolas, as he always called me. Uh, what's the number? He dialed the number. The person answered the phone. He said, Hello, oh, no, it's Barry Sheen here. I think you want to do an interview. Nicolas told me, he said. That's it. <laughs> and then I did the race with the BBC and it, yeah, it went from there. But that was Barry. Helping you, helping you all the way. I, I never forget. Hello, uh, Barry Sheena, You want to you want to do an interview, don't you? Nick last told me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: I love it. I love it. We will yeah. tap into your your um, memory bank of him as we we go, if you if you don't mind. In Not finishing some of this, in, in finishing some of the stuff around, um, you know what you do with with Nick Harris Media Communications, even even now. Can we bounce through a couple of names from the the Rothmans Honda period there? Firstly, Eddie Lawson.
1: Ah, uh, Eddie. Yeah, uh, c- caught completely by surprise. I could. I was uh, sitting at home. Phone rang. David Beck from Rothmans. Uh, we've signed Eddie Lawson. You've signed. We signed Eddie Lawson. Yeah, he's going to do a uh, year with Wayne Gardner uh, in the Rothmans Honda team. Nineteen eighty nine. He won uh, three world titles for Yamaha. I thought David was joking. I said, "Does Wayne? No, no, not yet." Put the phone down, the phone rings at me. She said, Wayne Gardner here. What the f- is going on? Is it true they've signed? <laughs> Eddie Lawson I said, Oh, sorry, Wayne. I don't know anything about that. I thought I'd had keep out of it when Wayne was laughing." So I got dispatched to uh, California, a secret dispatch that comes just before Christmas. Eddie had always been really difficult with the media. So I was pretty, a bit nervous. lived in uplands in california we spent three wonderful days with him filming uh interviews everything getting everything ready for when the announcement came we had a great time and came back uh eddie was fantastic for that year to work with really really helpful Uh, unbelievable different eddie and of course he went and won the world title and so Typical Eddie, and he went back to Yamaha. He only did it for one year. <laughs> oh, that's it. Thank you. I can prove I can win on that dog. Back to Yamaha, now. yeah. One lots of races on Yamaha on the Kajiva before retiring. Very, very underrated world champion. What four times world champion, Eddie? Yeah,
0: yeah. We should think of him. I guess what you're saying there, in, you know, in in our memory bank or in a in a radar sense, in a in a greater capacity. Is that what you mean?
1: Yeah, I do. There's only with the, with the Mark Marquez. Uh, switched Hmm. obviously to Ducati from Honda that's all the big news at the moment there's only five riders that have switched machinery and won a world title on different bikes Jeff Duke Valentino Rossi Rossi, Casey Stoner Giacomo Agostini and eddie lawson they're the only five in the 74 years year history of the sport in the premier class that have switched machinery and won the world title One. on two mm-hmm. different makes so it, it, it's you know for eddie to do that and then to go back to Yamaha, but well that that was so eddie to do that yeah that's it thank you you the world title Tick and Box. Now. Tick yeah When you think of Philip Highland, Wayne
0: Gardner's unforgettable wins in the fearsome 500cc era immediately come to mind. In front of a huge home crowd, it changed his life forever. Also, look at me go, I'm really getting this moto lingo. And I remember leaving the track on Monday, and then there was big signs up on the roads and over the bridge, going off. Thought Byron's got Wayne for PM, and I'm thinking <laughs> this is going to be interesting. <laughs> so I thought one day I might end up in in Parliament, you know, as a, as the PM. But uh, I don't want that job. <laughs> so, but it was a it was a nice recognition of what happened on the weekend, and everyone just loved it, and you know and. It etched my name in, in stone forever, you know, in that moment. So a uh, pretty special moment. Could you imagine Wayne as PM? Progress really would be his middle name. You can find the WG episode, a three-parter, in the Rusty Garage library. Now, back to his media manager during the height of Gardner's success, Nick Harris. You've mentioned Wayne. Let's talk about WG. How did you... Uh. Deal with all that, and then you know the friendship and stuff that you that you share.
1: Yeah, we we uh, I met Wayne at Daytona when he was riding the Kawasaki, so we we we, we got to know each other. Then he came to ride in Britain in, in the British Superweight Championship, uh came over with Donna, and we became great friends. We still are still are great friends, and uh, he helped me enormously uh in my career, and I, I think I helped him enormously uh, in his career. I mean. Wayne, some stories you can tell, others you can't, but uh, can't. It, was, it was just, it, it was, uh, I spent hours outside medical centres or explaining to people why he wasn't there, okay. not in the medical centre, why he wasn't at places, uh, Whoa, what, uh, what a man of steel, what a determined hmm. guy. Uh, he he just never accepted defeat, and when he won that world title in '87 in, in Guyana and Brazil was just fantastic. And, uh, one one of my favorite favorite uh, uh, favorite moments we we went to Guyana. I'd never been to Guyana. found out it was the party city of Brazil pretty quickly. What what an amazing no great surprise. place to win, to win the <laughs> world championship! I can assure you. BBC wanted to get him live on the radio immediately after the race if he won the World Championship because he'd been doing some, he really helped me doing some great stuff on BBC Radio after every race they, they loved him because he was so funny and telling mm. stories and everything else so when I got to Guyana, uh, trying to fix it up one fixing up the local broadcasters was not easy but they did arrive on the Saturday, but they didn't have a microphone for me, so I had to pay, you know, cash, all things that you learn as you go along. (laughs) The difficult thing was that the the commentary point was on the opposite side of the track to the podium. And I was trying to work hard to get to Wayne after he'd been on the podium to come to the commentary point. I got friendly with the chief of police of Guayana. It was very fortuitous. I think I probably met him in that local club where everybody seems to go to all the time. The Zoom Zoom club where the guy would fire the gun into the ceiling to start the night off. And he said, leave it with me. It will be sorted. So I left it to him. Wayne, Julie, and his world championship T-shirt on, covered in champagne, arrived at the commentary point with five, six armed policemen, rifles and everything, marched up the steps, sat down, and we did the live broadcast into London, and uh, it was brilliant. Yeah, absolutely brilliant.
0: That's where the
1: celebrations afterwards. I can tell you in the Zoom Zoom Club. In
0: the Zoom Zoom Club. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I love it. I love it. In your in your farewell video, which people can find on online that um Dawna and MotoGP did beautiful you in the press conference end of twenty seventeen, Valentino Rossi kind of ends up chairing it, Jorge Lorenzo, um, Danny Pedrosa, Mark Marquez. Um they're all there and there's a great there's a great comment in the midst of that beautiful video from one Jeremy Burgess who says along the lines if he ever needs any help with retirement to give you you know to give him a call and and so on can we get a memory of JB he's been a guest on the podcast as well because he was around in that whole period with with Rothmans
1: while you were there wasn't he he certainly was, yeah. Uh, JB, there's so many. Oh, yeah, I I, I can. I, there's, there's lots of JB and I, we became great friends. I remember when he came over to Britain and he worked at to, to Suzuki, I think, in those early days, didn't he? Mm-hmm. And meet him at the TT and then the the, the, the the Rothman Sonder days, always moaning about the clothing, never fitted and didn't know what they were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we're massive cricket fans, so we were yep. in uh, the Saxon ring, it was the Ashes series, and I really can't. Remember the year, uh, anyway. Uh, one of the top, so Valentino Julie won the race, and they used to come into our room where we were commentating before they went on to the podium. So JB was mm. there with him, so he had to get the uh, the award. And one of the, me and Gavin Emmett were listening to the cricket as well because we were cricket fanatics. And one of the top, I forget who it was, Australians was out, so we wrote down he was out and read, and we said to Jerry, uh, put that in your top pocket, that note. And when you're on the podium, have a look at it. <laughs> <laughs> so off we went. Valentino receives. Jerry comes to get the award for Honda. And he, we can see him like lifting his face with feet. <laughs> we still bet on the test matches now, me and Jerry. And he Love didn't it. let me off a penny. I can assure you, not oh, a penny. Bit. He, uh, we still, we do, yeah. Ah, uh, we were, we were great pals, and uh, yeah, and it was a a sad ending to his career I, I I really don't think it was handled very well with Valentino Rossi and the team how the the, the news leaked out but these things happened you know it happened to me mm. people feel it's time to to you, know, you move on but I uh, uh, I, I, just to find out, as we did in that press conference in Valencia, almost a, 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 an off the cuff comment somebody said, Well, mm. we've seen in the Italian press that uh, Jeremy Burgess is leaving. Is that true? Valentino had to admit it. And I, I yeah, well, oh, wow. I, I don't think it was uh, done properly for a matter. Such a loyal servant. And all the other Australians with him, uh, Briggsy mm. and, and everybody else. Uh, they were a great team. They were such good fun. Uh, oh. They are great to socialise with. Mad on cricket, so we would always have. I took them to Lords once, um, I forget what year it was to the uh England Australia game, and Michael Atherton was the captain of England. And they were, he was on 99. And never forget, we all sat there and they were getting a bit annoyed, Jerry and the boys. And then Atherton went for a short run, slipped over, and the Aussies ran him out. They went absolutely cracking. They never <laughs> let me forget that for, for years. Yeah, when I took them to Lord's as a, as a gift. Yeah. <laughs>
0: It's the end of part one of my feature ep with the voice of MotoGP Nick Harris. We still have plenty of laps to cover in this edition leading up to the 2023 Australian Motorcycle Grand Prix at Phillip Island. If you're enjoying this on your way there, please drive or ride carefully. When it's safe to, take part in or jump back to the library and hit the gas on part two. From working in Formula One to bidding farewell to Baz, plus his observations on some of the Aussies who've made their mark in the sport and his island memories too that's all ahead in part two with nick harris here on rusty's garage